When she was alive, Joan of Arc was called a hero, a leader, a witch. Almost 600 years later, she's remembered as a martyr, a saint. But what's the real story behind her short life? As is often the case, the truth behind the legend is more complicated than the story we think we know. But one thing's for sure, this saint was a product and a victim of her time. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the life of Joan of Arc, a teenage girl who believed she was chosen by God to save France during the Hundred Years' War. Next week, we'll delve into Joan's military victories and her spectacular, tragic ending. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, Adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. To understand Joan of Arc's story, we need to begin nearly a century before she was even born, when a violent conflict erupted between France and England. Perhaps fittingly, the thing that defined Joan's life was rooted in an argument about a woman's role in the royal line of succession. In 1328, France's King Charles IV died without a male heir, and neither of his daughters was permitted to rule. At the time, France's laws excluded women from inheriting property or the throne. Instead, the country opted to coronate Charles's closest male relative, his cousin, Philip of Valois. 
he became King Philip VI and no one had any objections at first. You see, England's King Edward III eventually took issue with Philip's ascension, and in October of 1337, the English king proclaimed that he was the rightful heir to the French throne. And to be fair, he wasn't totally wrong. Edward's mother, Isabella, was the late French king's sister, making Edward a closer male relative to the late Charles. But the matter of who should be France's ruler hinged on which laws you followed. Because Edward and Charles were related through a woman, France excluded the Englishman from consideration. But England didn't care about France's Salic law. Edward wanted the French throne. Philip held fast. He wasn't going anywhere. Before long, the argument escalated to the point of no return, outright war. The resulting bloodshed outlasted both monarchs, continuing well into the next century. It eventually earned the name the Hundred Years' War. So by the 1400s, France was in bad shape. The English occupied most of the country, including Paris, leaving the French with only fragments of land. Making matters worse, many French people questioned their leader's erratic behavior. King Charles VI had a mental illness that, unfortunately, led to France becoming fractured even further. Before we continue with Charles's psychology, please note I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. King Charles experienced delusions, melancholy, and rage. Today, many have theorized that the monarch likely had schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or encephalitis, a type of inflammation in the brain. But medieval society didn't know as much about the human brain as we do now. In fact, most of the devout Christian population at the time saw medicine as a matter of good and evil. They believed that sickness was caused by committing sins and demonic possession. Even the Pope thought Charles's illness was a punishment from God. The common treatment for symptoms like his was an exorcism or being burned at the stake. But as the King of France, Charles wasn't subject to either. Still, many of his people believed that he was a sinner who was unfit to rule and opposed Charles's reign. This group became known as the Burgundians, and they sided with the English during the war. So now, France was at war with England and its own people. Already, the fighting had wiped out half of France's citizens. The country was fractured, and everyone seemed desperate for any scrap of hope they could find, even if that bright spot came from a clairvoyant. In 1398, a woman named Marie d'Avignon prophesied that a young, armed virgin woman was destined to save France. According to Marie's vision, this savior would come from somewhere near the Duchy of Lorraine in the northeastern part of the country. As such, people started calling the promised woman La Pucelle de Lorraine, or the Maid of Lorraine. Soon, the prognostication spread, and people all across France hoped the Maid of Lorraine would arrive to save them from the never-ending war. But little did anyone know, a young woman who matched that exact description had already entered the world. 
1412, a young girl was born in a small village named Doremi. Although today she's widely known as Joan of Arc, her name wasn't actually Joan. Her given name was Jean, which the English later translated to Joan. At the time, Doremi women often took their mother's surnames, but for some reason, Jean was given her father's appellation, Dark. Perhaps it was because he held a respected role in the community as the village's elder or doyen. In this position, Jean's father collected taxes and worked with town officials to protect Doremi from the war raging across France. Though Jean's village was loyal to the French crown, the Burgundians controlled most of northern France and the surrounding countryside. They frequently raided the small town and set fire to her family's 50-acre farm. Despite the frequent violence they experienced, Jean's family were devout Catholics with an unwavering faith. Then again, it's entirely possible that the violence inspired their faith. A 2019 study published in Nature Human Behavior examined the effects of war on religiosity. The investigation found that the more someone is exposed to armed violence, the more likely it is they'll turn to religion for relief. According to the study, faith helped people find community and assuage worries about future conflicts. Perhaps for this reason, Jean's mother, Isabelle, raised her children to be pious Catholics who regularly attended church and confession, especially as the situation in France became even worse. In May of 1420, when Jean was eight, France lost a devastating battle in Azincourt, and a staggering 6,000 French soldiers died in the fight. With this victory, England was closer than ever to complete control of France. In the aftermath, France's King Charles VI and England's King Henry V met to negotiate a treaty. Charles had reached the end of his rope, his mental illness was taking its toll, and his son, Charles VII, had a scandal-filled reputation, which made him an unpopular heir. So, King Charles struck a deal he hoped would make everyone happy. The terms of the arrangement made Henry's children the new heirs to the French throne, disinheriting his maligned son. Unfortunately, the treaty only caused more headaches. When both kings died in 1422, Henry's nine-month-old son, Henry VI, ascended the French throne. Unsurprisingly, the French people refused to acknowledge the infant monarch. In their eyes, 19-year-old Charles VII was the rightful heir. As such, the younger Charles became France's unofficial sovereign during the nation's most crucial moment. By now, the country had only one major city left under its control, Orléans. If it was captured, England's control of France would be absolute, and both sides knew it. The French didn't know when the invasion would occur, but it was obvious that England would soon target the city. During the lead-up to the attack, the Burgundians continued their campaign of terror against their countrymen. Some 200 miles north of Orléans, Jeanne d'Arc's town was a favorite target. In early 1425, the faction stole cattle from the town and set fire to Jeanne's beloved church. 
Afterwards, Jean might have prayed to a divine power for comfort and strength, but what she got was something else entirely. The story goes that in the summer of 1425, Jean, who would have been about 13 years old, was playing in the garden among the flowers. Her playtime, however, turned into a moment she would never forget. In her right ear, she heard a man's voice. Jean turned around and saw a beautiful young man surrounded by bright light. At first, she backed away from the stranger, frightened, but before she could run away, he introduced himself. He was Saint Michael, patron of the military, an angel sent by God. Naturally, Jean was skeptical, but Saint Michael pressed on. He gave the young teen three specific commands. First, she was to stay pious and continue going to church. Second, she was to stay a virgin. And then he gave a third, weirdly specific instruction. He wanted Jean to travel to another town to ask an army captain for soldiers that she would lead into the eventual siege of Orléans. Undoubtedly, the bizarre request took Jean aback. It sounded like the angel was hinting that she was the maid of Lorraine, which she doubted could be true. But still, St. Michael continued with more instructions. After defending Orléans, Jean had one more task to complete, and it was the biggest one of all. She needed to restore Charles VII as France's true king. This was a tall order for a 13-year-old girl, and like a typical teenager, Jean talked back. First of all, she didn't believe that the strange man was an angel, and even if he was, these tasks were impossible for her. She was a child from a poor family with no connections to the royals. She enjoyed simple things like dancing and spinning wool with her mother. There was no way she could lead soldiers into battle. But Michael said her mission was assigned by God, and he wasn't giving up. After that first day, he visited Jean again. Those other visits went a little differently. In one, Jean later claimed that on one occasion, Michael proved himself to be an angel, though she never disclosed how. Another time, he was joined by two other saints, Catherine of Alexandria and Margaret of Antioch, both famous martyrs. Other times, Jean didn't see the angels at all. She'd just see a bright light and hear their voices and the sound of bells. But one thing was always the same in these visions. The saints wanted Jean to take on God's mission to save France. Eventually, the angels' commands were impossible to ignore. The more they spoke to her, the more Jean came to believe she wasn't an ordinary girl. She was special. Eventually, she realized that she was the promised savior everyone had whispered about for years. She was the maid of Lorraine. And she was about to change the course of history. Up next, Jean runs away from home and into the army. 
Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals, like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own, or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1425, 13-year-old Jeanne d'Arc accepted her destiny as La Pucelle de Lorraine, or the Maid of Lorraine. She believed she was the chaste, armed woman foretold to save France. To demonstrate her commitment to God and the prophecy, Jeanne began calling herself Jeanne La Pucelle, or Jeanne the Maiden, and vowed to remain a virgin just as the prophecy dictated. Though the prophecy that set her fate in motion wasn't Christian in origin, the church has long held Jeanne up as a saint, a woman chosen by God to save France from the English. But it's possible that her destiny had less to do with divine guidance and more to do with an undiagnosed illness. There's a popular modern theory that Jeanne had epilepsy, Many studies published in medical journals suggest that she had hallucinations typically present in a certain type of epileptic seizures. Those kinds of episodes involve an auditory trigger causing illusions which are bathed in a bright light, just like the angels Jean saw. Other medical studies hypothesize that schizophrenia or bovine tuberculosis caused Jean's visions. However, as we saw with King Charles VI, medieval medicine wasn't very advanced. Devout Catholics, like Jean, mostly viewed illnesses as the result of sin or demonic possession. Because her visions dealt with God and not the devil, Jean likely thought these voices and images didn't signal anything evil. But still, she probably feared persecution, so she didn't tell anyone about her angelic visitors. Jeanne kept her vow to stay pure, a secret between her and God. She stayed true to this pledge for a few years, until Jeanne's parents unintentionally derailed it, resulting in her first brush with the law. 
Sometime in 1428, she turned 16, the average marriage age for young women in medieval France. So her father promised Jean to a suitor. And she was livid. Jean couldn't believe her father made such an arrangement without consulting her. She didn't want the conventional life of a wife and mother. She was destined for greater things. With that destiny in mind, she rejected the proposal and refused to wed the young man. But like many men throughout history, Jean Souter didn't handle rejection well. In fact, he sued her, and back then, he had the legal right to do so. Unfortunately for Jean, society saw the arrangement of marriages as a legally binding contract. So by breaking off the engagement, she was left open to her would-be fiancé's lawsuit. Thankfully, the judge ruled that because Jean's father arranged the marriage, not her, Jean didn't legally owe the suitor anything. Jean was glad to win, but the lawsuit was a close call too close. Her parents and the litigious suitor nearly ruined God's plan for her. Not only that, it was clear that the English forces were preparing to attack Orléans at any moment. It was only a matter of time. Jeanne knew she needed to take action sooner rather than later. So she devised a plan to avoid another engagement debacle. First, she needed to somehow travel 12 miles north to Vaucoulours, the town the angels told her about. There, she'd convince Captain Robert de Baudricourt to give her some soldiers. Naturally, for 16-year-old Jean, putting this plan into action wasn't easy. Her parents kept an especially close eye on her after the bungled engagement, and she was scared they'd try to stop her leaving. So, like any teenager determined to disobey her parents, Jeanne knew she had to sneak out of the house. Of course, an obedient young woman like Jeanne felt guilty going behind her parents' back. After all, the angels hadn't instructed her to lie or misbehave. But Jeanne believed she was on a mission from God, and she needed to save France by any means necessary, even if it meant rebelling just a bit. Of course, her parents were just the first obstacle. There was also the matter of the anti-French Burgundians who regularly attacked her village. If they found Jeanne on her own, they'd likely capture and execute her. So she needed an adult who could guarantee her safe passage. Jeanne decided the best candidate was her 31-year-old cousin. She chose him because he and his wife lived in Bure-le-Petit, which was only three miles away from Vaucoulours. Jean also had the perfect excuse to visit. His wife was pregnant and close to giving birth. She asked him if she could stay at his house and help them prepare for the baby. He obliged. On May 5, 1428, Jean snuck out of her family's home to meet Durand, and together they traveled to Bure-le-Petit, the first part of Jean's plan was a success. Now she just needed to convince Durand to bring her to Vaucoulours. While helping her cousins around the house, Jean overwhelmed Durand with evidence that she was the prophesied maid of Lorraine. She told him that if he went with her to Vaucoulours, he could help her save France. Jean was pretty persuasive, but even more than that, she was confident and determined. 
Like his young cousin, Durand believed that the foretold savior was France's only hope. Everyone had prayed for years that someone would suddenly appear to rescue France from the endless war. And if that person was Jean, Durand wanted to help. He became her first follower and agreed to take her to Vaucouleurs. Eight days later, on May 13, 1428, Jean and Durand arrived at the military quarters, where they located Robert, the captain. At last, Jean was able to fulfill the third request St. Michael had made of her years earlier. She asked Robert for some of his soldiers, explaining that she needed them to escort her on a dangerous trip across France to Charles VII's home in Chignon. There, she'd ask for the rightful king's permission to lead an army in Orléans. When she finished talking, Robert looked Jean up and down and shook his head. Some of his soldiers were just as young as her, only about 16, but they were boys. And Robert wasn't about to take orders from a teenage girl. Then the captain told Durand to take her home. Jean was frustrated. She hadn't gotten through to him. In fact, he didn't take her seriously at all. But as she and Durand walked away, Jean wasn't discouraged. She had known Robert would reject her. The angels forewarned her that it would take more than one attempt to convince the captain. And despite the setback, Jean's visit wasn't a complete waste of time. While there, she won over two soldiers, who heard her pitch to Robert and believed every word. They were just the first of many. Slowly but surely, word spread about Jean's cause, and she garnered the support of many other soldiers and townspeople in Vaucouleurs. The French people were overjoyed to find out that the maid of Lorraine was the teenage Jean. As the news reached further, she collected more followers in her humble village, and soon her influence reached French nobility, eventually winning her a powerful ally in the Duke of Lorraine. These endorsements eventually helped her get another meeting with Robert in February of 1429, and it was just in time, too. The English siege of Orléans had begun, and France needed all the help it could get. This time, Jeanne was a year older and wiser. She came prepared with valuable information to persuade Robert, something only a prophesied savior could know. No one would be able to deny Jeanne's destiny any longer. Up next, Jean faces the devastating realities of war. Now back to the story. On February 12, 1429, Jean d'Arc met with Captain Robert de Baudricourt for the second time. This time, she was sure that she had information that had convinced him she was the maid of Lorraine. Jean gave Robert a vague but chilling prediction. French forces were going to experience another devastating loss to the English that day. As far as premonitions go, it was easy to laugh off. There was no way Jean could possibly know such things, not from so far away. Unbeknownst to them all, here's what was occurring at the time. In Rouvray, near Orléans, 
French soldiers teamed up with Scottish forces to ambush an English supply convoy. It was a failure. The English overpowered France and Scotland, causing both countries to lose 400 soldiers in the massacre. It's unclear if Jean's angelic allies told her the news or if she made the projection herself. Either way, she was confident when she told a skeptical Robert about the French army's major loss. But just like before, Robert didn't believe her. He dismissed her prediction as the ramblings of a teen girl. That was until a messenger arrived a few days later, delivering news that seemed to confirm Jean's words. Robert couldn't believe it. Jean was right. Suddenly, he too believed she was the maid of Lorraine. With that, Robert finally relented. He gave Jean a horse and a sword, along with a squad of soldiers to escort her the 270 miles to Chignon. Once they arrived, Jean would make her case to Charles VII, the rightful French king. But first, the long journey on horseback required them to trek through territory controlled by English and Burgundian forces. They'd become suspicious of them immediately if they spotted a woman riding with a group of soldiers, so her escort suggested that Jean disguise herself as a man. Wearing men's garments would help Jean blend in, and, if she was captured, protect her from sexual assault. Men's trousers and jackets contained complex knots and cords, which might just discourage a rapist. But there was a downside to this clothing choice. In the Middle Ages, women weren't technically allowed to dress in men's garments. This was likely because the ultimate medieval authority considered doing so a crime. The Bible. This was a major problem for Jean. Her mother raised her to be a pious, devout Catholic. Of course, she'd sinned in small ways, like sneaking out and rejecting an arranged marriage. But if Jean dressed like a man, she'd add a highly blasphemous act to the list. On the other hand, God had commanded her to go on this quest to begin with. So, just like when she ran away from home, Jean didn't think the Lord would consider it a sin if she wore men's attire to do his bidding. And so, Jean decided to don the disguise, believing God would protect her. She traded in her tattered red dress for a tunic, doublet-padded jacket, men's hose, and short trousers. To complete the incognito look, Jean cut her long hair into a cropped style, making her look more like a typical soldier. With her disguise complete, Jean and the soldiers departed Vaucouleur in February of 1429. During the journey, they mostly traveled at night to avoid any confrontations with English or Burgundian soldiers. Even still, it was a nerve-wracking trek. But when they were close to Chignon, when Jean was confident that they'd make it, she wrote to Charles VII requesting an audience. When she arrived in town 11 days later, he welcomed her into the royal court. But Charles wasn't dressed like himself. He, too, was in disguise. The pseudo-king wanted to test the young woman claiming to be France's savior. He knew she wouldn't know what he looked like, so he donned a commoner's clothing and hid in a small crowd. Jean wasn't fooled for a minute. 
When she entered the royal court, she immediately located and approached Charles and greeted him humbly, impressing everyone, including him. She'd passed the first test. After that, Jean and Charles retreated for a private audience. She told him about God's intention for her to defeat the English in the Siege of Orléans. She promised Charles that if he gave her protective armor and permission to ride with the army, she'd make sure he finally became king. Once Jean finished talking, Charles considered her words. He knew that the beleaguered French army was losing more men and battles by the day. If Orléans fell to the English, it would all be over. He was out of options, and trusting a teenager didn't seem like the worst idea. On the other hand, Charles wasn't sure about a young girl making such outlandish claims, and he wanted to test her one more time. He needed Jean to prove that she was everything she claimed to be, pious, God-fearing, and a virgin. So for three weeks in March of 1429, clerks at the University of Poitiers interrogated Jean about her faith. They also performed a physical exam to confirm her chastity, although it's unclear exactly how they did this. Most likely the procedure was an invasive and perverse hymen check. Many people back then believed that if the hymen was still intact, the woman was chaste. As we now know, that doesn't always mean a girl is a virgin. But there's also a chance that Jean's exam wasn't quite so intrusive. According to the medieval text Women's Secrets, some believed a woman's virginity could be determined from her attitude and by examining her chamber pot. The book contains a theory that sexually active ladies had cloudy urine, while samples from a chaste woman were clear and lucid. In any case, the university clerks confirmed that Jean was a good Christian and a virgin by April of 1429. Their report said that in her is found no evil, but only good, humility, virginity, devotion, honesty, simplicity. It was enough to convince Charles to let Jean help in the siege of Orléans. Jean was excited to finally be taken seriously, but while feeling that joy, she made a chilling prediction about her own life. She told Charles, I shall last a year and but little longer. We must think to do good work in that year. It's unclear if Jean was foretelling her own death or if she was only willing to fight in the war for a year. Either way, Charles helped Jean get ready for battle. As she had requested, he paid for her full suit of armor, which was custom-made. Along with that, he gave Jean titular command of veteran soldiers. This meant that she was a symbolic leader of the army, while actual commanders would make any strategic decisions. Jean seemed fine with this, as long as she had the army God wanted her to have. Once preparations were done, Jean and her soldiers set out for Orléans. Jean and the men arrived outside the besieged city on April 29th. But of course, they couldn't just walk in. 
The existing French stronghold devised a plan to sneak the convoy inside. They sent out a group of soldiers to initiate combat with the English as a distraction. This allowed Jean's forces to ride in undetected and gave the teenager her first glimpse of battle. Eyewitnesses said she didn't look nervous or scared. She was confident, ready to tackle the next step in God's plan for France. However, like much of Jean's journey, it wouldn't be easy. The angels had told her to go to Orléans, but they never told her about all the challenges she'd face when she got there. While her own men were loyal to her, the French soldiers who'd been in the city for months were not, and the French commander, Jean de Dunois, didn't help Jean's situation at all. De Dunois knew Jean had titular command over the soldiers, and he expected her to be a spiritual leader for the army. He did not expect her to stroll in and demand to lead an attack against the English, but that's just what she did. Jean didn't care that her role was largely symbolic. She was on God's mission, and there was no time to waste. Even so, de Dunois told her no, that wasn't her job. They remained at odds for several days, disagreeing on strategies to attack English Bastilles and supply convoys. De Dunois simply didn't want to take direction from Jean, and to be fair, Jean was a teenager with no battle experience whatsoever. In contrast, 26-year-old de Dunois had been in the army for over a decade. He was cautious when forming his strategies, and he knew how much was at stake for France. As a result, de Dunois and his soldiers treated Jean like an outsider. The commander often launched attacks without alerting her, which she found deeply insulting. In one instance, the French army attacked the English while Jean took a nap. She only found out because the loud fighting woke her up. But sometimes de Dunois did invite her to ride with the army. On those occasions, Jean rode with her banner held high, but refused to brandish a weapon near the front lines. She believed that her greatest assets were her intellect and her connection to God, both of which would be better used coming up with battle strategies. So in her downtime, she even studied the English troops stationed outside the city walls, making plans. While walking around Orléans, she also got to know the locals. Jean was delighted to find that they had faith in her mission. Evidently, word had spread about her arrival, and people were overjoyed to meet her. The Maid of Lorraine gave them the hope they'd been looking for. She handed out food and supplies, telling them that God would protect Orléans and drive out the enemy. Inspired by Jean, the city folks formed their own volunteer force. On May 6th, they showed up to the military headquarters, wanting to join the fight alongside Jean and God. With a few words from the Maid of Lorraine, de Dunois was convinced to let them march with the army. And it was just in time for a major French assault on two English-occupied structures, a fort built around the Les Augustins Monastery and Saint-Jean-le-Blanc Church. The French army wanted to drive the English out of there for good. 
Early on May 6th, as battle drew closer, Jean joined the other soldiers for breakfast. While eating, she blurted out an odd prediction. She would be wounded that very day. Hours later, Jean and the army rode into combat, and even early on, it wasn't looking good. French forces were, once again, losing hope. Around noon, France retreated. But as the soldiers cared for their injuries, Jean was still in good spirits. She tried to cheer them up, telling them victory was within their grasp. She had the men fired up and ready to fight again an hour later. The men rushed back into battle while Jean set up a ladder on the city rampart. She was feeling good about her speech and hoped it might inspire a much-needed French victory. But that's when her prediction came true. An arrow pierced Jean's armor just above her right breast. She looked down at the injury and cried. For the first time in a long time, she was scared and thought this was it. She was going to die. But God's plan for Jean wasn't over just yet. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two. We'll follow Jeanne as she leads France to further victory until she gets captured by the enemy. For more information on Joan of Arc, amongst the many sources we used, we found Jeanne d'Arc by Régine Pernou extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new podcast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who were far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify.